Okay, we're going to move on and talk now about defenses to contract enforceability. So to start with, we have incapacity as the first defense. So a party must have capacity in order to enter into a contract. Contracts entered into by a person who does not have capacity are voidable by the person who lacked capacity. Minors, or people under 18, and those who lack mental capacity, meaning people who cannot understand the meaning and effect of the contract, generally lack capacity to enter into a contract. However, minors may be bound for contracts for necessities, such as food, shelter, or clothing. Another defense is duress. So duress takes two different forms, physical compulsion and economic duress. We'll start with physical compulsion. If a person physically compels a person to agree to a contract, then the contract is void, meaning that the conduct is not effective to create a contract. It's as if it never existed. Examples include physically forcing someone to sign a contract or making someone agree to a contract via gunpoint. Economic duress, on the other hand, is not void, but rather a voidable contract on the ground of economic duress when one, a person makes an improper threat that induces a party to who has no, no reasonable alternative but to enter the contract. Three, a mere threat to breach a contract without more is generally insufficient. A threat, even if improper, does not amount to duress if the victim fails to take advantage of a reasonable alternative. Another defense is undue influence. So, Sorry, I'm yawning. <sighs> Anyways, undue influence involves the unfair persuasion of a person who e is either under the domination of the person exercising the influence or justified in assuming that the person will not act in a manner inconsistent with his welfare because of the relationship between them, such as a parent and child, a husband and wife, clergyman and parishioner, physician and patient. If the contract is induced by undue influence by the other contracting party, the contract is If the contract is induced by a non-party to the contract, the contract is voidable by the victim unless the other party to the contract, one, gives value or materially relies, two, in good faith, and three, without reason to know of the undue influence on the transaction. Another defense is mistake. So we'll talk both about mutual mistake and unilateral mistake because oftentimes they're conflated, but they're different. So a contract is voidable, meaning it may be rescinded or reformed when there's a mutual mistake. Mutual mistake occurs when one, both parties are mistaken as to a basic assumption on which the contract is made. Two, the mistake is material to the contract. And three, the person asserting the mistake did not bear the risk of the mistake by agreement or by a party treating their limited knowledge as sufficient. Um, so again, bearing the risk of mistake is either it's like written in the contract that the person who signs it bears the risk of mistake or bears the risk, whatever. Um, or like somebody entering a contract clearly not knowing enough and just being like, that's good enough, whatever. Um, not the clearest explanation, but... That's kind of what did it for me when I was studying. A unilateral mistake, on the other hand, is a mistake made by one party, two, that is unknown to the other party, three, concerning a basic assumption, four, that has material effect. 
A unilateral mistake is generally not a valid defense to formation of a contract. However, if one party knew or had reason to believe that the other party was mistaken or the mistake would make enforcement of the contract unconscionable, the contract is voided, voidable by the mistaken party. When the mistake involves price or value, the equitable remedy of rescission, of rescission or reformation will not be allowed because price slash value is not considered material. Sort of related to mistake, not quite, but a little bit related, is misrepresentation. So, a fraudulent misrepresentation occurs when one party knowingly makes a false representation of a fact and the other party reasonably relies on the misrepresentation to their detriment. A contract induced by a fraudulent mistake is voidable, meaning it may be rescinded again, by the injured party. A non-fraudulent mistake occurs when there is a statement of material fact by a party or agent that is false, there's no requirement of wrongdoing here, inducing the contract and the other party reasonably relies on the, on the misrepresentation to his detriment. A contract induced by material misrepresentation is voidable by the injured party unless there is no justifiable reliance on the misrepresented fact. A misrepresentation is material if it would likely induce a reasonable person to agree. Concealment, or an affirmative act intended to keep another from learning of a fact, is equivalent to misrepresentation, a false statement of fact. Generally, there is no duty to disclose information unless a. there is a fiduciary relationship, b. it is necessary to correct an earlier mistake, c. active concealment of a, of a material fact occurs, or d. a person is selling real property and knows material facts that affect the value of the property the buyer is unaware of and cannot reasonably discover. So remember, there's both fraudulent misrepresentation and non-fraudulent. Another defense is illegality of public policy. So courts will not enforce contracts that are illegal or contrary to public policy. Such contracts are void if the illegality existed at the time of contract formation. If the contract was legal at the time of contract formation but has subsequently become illegal, performance will be discharged. A contract with illegal purpose is voidable by a party who didn't know of the illegal purpose. Kind of related, um, not quite public policy, but just, you know, not right, is unconscionability. So unconscionability is another defense. Unconscionability occurs when a contractor term shocks the conscience of the court. The determination of unconscionability is made in light of the setting purpose and effect of the transaction. Relevant factors a court will consider include weaknesses in the contracting process, similar to lack of capacity, fraud, and other invalidating causes, which is public policy grounds. Inadequacy of consideration alone does not invalidate a contract. Unconscionability usually occurs if the contract or the contract term is both substantively and procedurally unconscionable. So what is the difference between these two? Procedural unconscionability occurs when one party to the contract, usually the party who wrote the contract, has a superior bargaining position over the other party and uses that power to their advantage. An example is engaging in unfair pressure or bargaining practices to force the other party to enter into the contract. Substantive unconscionability occurs when the contract contains terms that are obviously unfair and one-sided in favor of the party with the superior bargaining power. 
If a contract or term is found unconscionable, a court may refuse to enforce a contract, enforce a contract without the unconscionable term, or limit the application of any unconscionable term. Another commonly used offense is the statute of frauds, which comes into effect when contracts require assigned writing. So under the statute of frauds, the following contracts are not valid unless they are, unless they are in writing signed by the party to be charged. So it doesn't have to be the other party, but the party to be charged. Marriage contracts, surety ships, which is where a guarantor promises to take on the debt of another if that person fails to pay, unless the main purpose exception applies, or that the surety's main purpose in making the promise was to benefit himself. Contracts that cannot be fully performed in one year from the date the contract is entered into. There must be no possible way that the contract can be performed within one year. Contracts for the sale of rent of real property or creating an interest in real property, such as easements over one year, leases over one year, mortgages or fixtures. Promises to pay an estate's debt from the personal funds of the executor or administrator. And six, the contract for sale of goods for $500 or more. I remember in contracts in school, they did the um, acronym MyLegs. It's like... M, marriage contracts, Y, year or more, L, land, E, executor, um, like they said here, the promises to pay an estate debt from the personal funds of the executor, G, the sale of goods, and S, 30 ships. So, my legs, if that would help you remember. Um, going into a little more detail on the contract for a sale of goods of 500 or more. Under Article 2 of the UCC, all contracts for the sale of goods for $500 or more must be in writing. The writing must state the parties, the quantity, the nature of the goods, and must be signed by the party to be charged. However, four exceptions exist to this rule. First, there's the Merchant's Confirmatory Memorandum. In a sale of goods contract between two merchant, merchants, meaning two people dealing in goods of the kind, a writing that confirms an agreement is sufficient if it is signed by the party enforcing it, not the party whom it is enforced against, as long as the party against whom it is enforced against did not promptly object within 10 days after receipt. 2. Goods accepted and paid for a seller may enforce the contract price of any goods accepted and paid for by the buyer, but not the whole contract price if only a portion of the qu total quantity of goods to the contract are accepted. 3. Custom-made goods. A seller may enforce the contract price for custom-made goods, which are goods in which the seller has made a substantial start and are not suitable for sale in the ordinary course of the seller's business. And 4. Admission during judicial proceeding. A sale of goods contract for $500 or more is enforceable without a writing when the party to be charged admits that there was a contract during judicial proceeding, either in a deposition or courtroom testimony. So let's finish up here with talking about what exactly the requirement is for the statute of frauds writing. Um, so any of these things, the my legs or the sale of goods, um, let's talk about what those requirements have to be. 
So in order to satisfy the statute of frauds, a writing must, one, be signed by or on behalf of the party to be charged, two, reasonably identify the subject matter of the contract, three, indicate that a contract has been made by the parties, and four, state the essential terms with reasonable certainty. The writing may be formal or informal, including a written contract, will, notation on a check, receipt, pleading, informal letter, or an electronic communication, such as an email. Statute of Frauds does not require that an agreement be contained in one signed document. It may consist of several writings if, one, one of the writings is signed, and two, the writings clearly indicate that they relate to the same transaction. Signed in these cases means any symbol with the intent to adopt or accept a writing, including a written or typed name, initials, electronic signature, or a symbol found in a billhead or letterhead when the UCC applies. Under the UCC, a writing is not insufficient because it omits or incorrectly states a term agreed upon, but the contract is not enforceable beyond the quantity of goods shown in such a writing. So that's it for defenses. We're going to move on next to um, things such as the parole evidence rule, um, construction, things like that, before we move on to performance, breach, and discharge. Cool. Thank you.